he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be with the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you, wee little man. <laughs> you know that, right? That song? And that's where uh, I know that uh, Ken was referring to. A lot of us learned it when we were children. And uh, nowadays it would be Zacchaeus, the vertically challenged little man, or challenged man, but we learned it a little differently. Do you ever remember that song? Yeah, sing it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house to stay. Good job. Good job. How about that? You know, I am so thankful that I had parents. I bet I learned that song more than 50 years ago, right? I'm trying to give them my age. I'm now in my, well into my 50s. And I learned that song well into my, over 50 years ago. I had parents who taught me the Word of God. They told me the Bible stories. They sang songs like that with me that planted the Word of God in my heart and in my mind so that now the foundation of my worldview, how I look at life, is built upon Scripture and stories just like this one. You know, we, uh, what many of us have received from our parents, our grandparents, we, want to, we have a desire, right, to pass that on to our own children and our grandchildren. We want to see them have that heritage of being part of the covenant family of God. And we've captured that desire in the vision of our church and the vision goals that we've been going over these last few weeks. The the leadership gave us a, a sentence that describes where we see God taking us and what he wants to do in our church over the next 10 years. Uh, read, this, read this sentence with me out loud, if you would. Recognizing that we are a church of broken people being restored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. By our 50th anniversary in 2028, we will equip and motivate our church members to bring gospel restoration to at least one friend or neighbor, and we will help plant 50 new churches in our community and around the world. This vision sentence, this statement, kind of gives a picture of where we think God is going to take us over the next 10 years, but we didn't stop with that. Over the last few weeks, 
We've given you goals, vision goals, that will help us understand when have we actually accomplished this. We don't just want a statement and then not know whether or not we have arrived at the destination. And so over the last few weeks, we've brought messages to you built around these goals of 50 adult members leading another adult to Christ and into discipleship. So part of this vision is 50 new followers. And then as we just kind of referred to a few couple of weeks ago in the message that I brought, 50 new generations, 50 children being led to Christ and into discipleship by their parents. And, and, and many of us, as I just mentioned, have been the recipients of a heritage of parents who led us to Christ and who discipled us. And we want to make sure that this is being carried out in our church. And then new churches, 50 new churches that we help plant and around the world, and with at least three to five of those being in our own backyard. And last week, Ben did a great job of, of not only giving us the biblical basis for why church planting is important, but even what it practically looks like, is we're gonna be sending him out, and him and Alana, and a core group in just a few months to plant in the southern part of our county. Well, we have one goal left, and that is the area of new stories. We want to see 50 people, and these can be Christians or non-Christians, but at the end of the day, we want to be rejoicing with at least 50 people who have the brokenness of their life restored through our church. And this goal brings us to the story that we're at this morning. This story is much more than just a little children's song. It's the story of a man who was broken by sin, but through his encounter with Jesus Christ, the entire trajectory of his life was changed, the brokenness was healed, and a new story was written for Zacchaeus because one day Jesus came to his house and stayed with him. Now, in most messages, you would start in a passage like this. In verse 1, and work your way to the end, verse 10. This morning's gonna be a little bit different. I'm gonna start with verse 10. And the reason is because verse 10 is the pivotal, I think that's the central point of the entire Gospel of Luke. It all pivots on chapter 19, verse 10. And of course, if it's that important to the book, it's obviously that important to the story itself. And so we're going to start there. We're using verse 10 as the first of four gospel applications. Verse 10 tells us the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This verse is speaking about the mission of Jesus. Why is he here? And the mission of Jesus is to seek out and rescue people who are lost and broken by sin. This verse, explaining the mission of Jesus, is the central verse of the book. It's the main verse of our entire story for several clear, very clear reasons. For example, the very first phrase of this sentence clearly states who Jesus is. For the Son of Man. You ought to underline that. If you don't know what that term means, it's an important one. The Israelites at the time of Jesus, they used this term to describe the person who they were looking for as Messiah. The one who would come from God, who would deliver them from their oppression, and who would bring about the kingdom of God, the Son of Man. 
It's linked to the Old Testament, to the vision that is given to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. In this vision that Daniel receives, he sees the Almighty One of Israel, God the Father, and approaching the Father is this other person who is called the Son of Man. And the Scriptures tell us in Daniel 7, verse 13, I, Daniel, said in the, saw in the night vision, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." Do you see how important this person, the Son of Man, is within biblical theology? And so here Jesus takes this title, the Son of Man, for a reason. It shows that he is the eternal God who has taken on flesh, who is going to rule all of the universe and become that person who establishes his dominion and kingdom for all time. In Luke 6, Verse 5, the Son of Man is described as the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who is over the law, the author of the law, who has the authority to live out and fulfill and bring about the law. In John 5, verse 26, the Son of Man is the one who has the authority granted to him from God, himself, God the Father to bring about judgment and act as the judge for all of humanity. In Acts chapter 7, we have this great passage where Stephen, the deacon of the church in Jerusalem, one of the deacons, and the very first martyr, as he is being stoned to death, and over on the side is Saul, whose name would become Paul, the apostle, is holding the cloaks of those who are throwing the rocks, killing this righteous man. Before he dies, God removes the veil from his eyes and, and lets him have a glimpse into the heavens something that we're going to begin studying next week, by the way. And as Stephen is being pelted by rocks, he cries out these words, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and there the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This opening phrase clearly states who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh, the Son of Man. The last word, of this sentence. It's also important because it clearly explains the human condition. Lost. Lost. Now, this weekend, I don't know if you caught it in the news, but you know, there was a time of celebration. Uh, you know, sometimes the news is very depressing, but this weekend there was something that actually was kind of heartwarming. Young lady has been lost for 16 days in Hawaii. I don't know how many of you have been following that story. She was a yoga instructor. I think she's in her early 30s. She was there with her family, with her boyfriend. She went out one morning for a hike by herself no one re before everyone got up, and she got lost. They could not find her. For 16 days, they searched. They finally had called off the search. The government called off the search, but volunteers continued to search for her. And yesterday, a, a guy in a helicopter going across the ravine looked down and he saw her 17 days, or almost 17 days after she left her family, she was found. With a few scratches, but she had been drinking water and eating plants, and I guess 
omen her way through that 17 days of desolation. And she was found. What a great ending. And, and they had the, the camera on mom and dad when they got the word. And you should have seen the joy that just burst forth from them as they realized their daughter was no longer lost but found. When we think of the word lost, we think of somebody who's, you know, they, they've lost their way, they, they need help getting back on the right path. It, it's somebody who needs a little bit of assistance. This is not what the word lost means in the New Testament. A better illustration of the word lost is earlier in the book of Luke in chapter 8. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. They're professional fishermen, professional seamen, and they're going across the Sea of Galilee one night when a horrible storm arises. And you may be familiar with the story as the, the waves got higher and higher and the men realized that they were in deep trouble. They began to get afraid and they grew more afraid and finally they are terrified. And through this entire storm, Jesus is in the back of the boat taking a nap. Apparently the rocking of the waves did magic for Jesus. And he's, he's snoozing and in their terror, they come to him. And they finally cry out, and this is what they say. Master, Master, we are lost. We are perishing. Same Greek word. We are perishing. And Jesus awakes and he, he rescues them. You see, the word lost in the New Testament is not a simple word of somebody who maybe needs some directions, like a husband who won't listen to his wife when they're trying to get to, from one place to another. This is somebody who is facing imminent destruction, ruin, eternal, absolute destruction. This is the word lost. It describes the human condition. And so if the first phrase is telling us who Jesus is, the last word clearly explains our need and our condition. Those middle words, that verb, those, those uh, uh, you know, descriptive phrases they're important because they define for us what Jesus' mission actually is, to seek and to save who? The lost, our lostness, church. As human beings, when we are born into this world, our lostness is so profound that Jesus, God, must do the seeking. We, we don't seek after Christ. We did not seek after God. We might have been seeking answers. We might have been seeking types of knowing something was wrong with our lives. But the Bible tells us we don't seek after God for that help. Romans chapter 3 tells us the scriptures say no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is what? Seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Our lostness is so profound and so deep, we don't seek God. Instead, Jesus has to do the seeking, and this is what we see in this story. In this story, in verse 5, Jesus is passing by. He comes to the place. He looks up. He says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you come down. We learned those hand motions when we were children. Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house to stay. Right? Jesus initiated the encounter with Zacchaeus. He reached out to Zacchaeus, and as a result, Zacchaeus' life is changed forever. You know, as the vision team discussed last ministry year, where did God want to take us? What is the mission of our church to be 
for the next 10 years, it was not hard for us to decide our mission needed in some way to reflect the mission of Jesus Christ. And what is the mission of Jesus Christ? It's to seek and to save and rescue people who were lost and are broken by sin. And so, in our mission of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs, we are trying to align ourselves with the mission of Jesus Christ. The great thing about this mission, the people that he seeks out and saves, is that Jesus, and this is our second application, he does not qualify it based upon how good we are. Jesus can seek, he can save, he can restore anyone, even the worst of the worst by human standards. Now, we looked at the last verse. Let's go back to the first verse where we would normally start. And what do we see there is that Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now we need to set some context here, Jericho, right? What was happening with Jesus? Right before this passage, Jesus has encountered the rich young ruler. A man who was wealthy and he was good. He was looked up to in his society. He was respected. He obeyed the law. He came to Jesus and said, I'm a good man. I'm a righteous man. I appreciate you, Jesus. I want to be your disciple. And Jesus turned to him and said, go and sell everything that you have and you can be my disciple. And the man walked away without salvation, the scripture says, because he was very wealthy. And that led to that famous saying by Jesus, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And soon after that encounter, right before they come into Jericho, the crowd is coming down the road and this man, this blind beggar, is standing on a, sitting on the side of the road and he hears that Jesus is coming and he begins to yell out. He actually begins to scream out. The scriptures are indicating in a very loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he cries this out and he yells it and it's so loud and it's so irritating that the crowd is getting upset with him and tries to shut him up, which he must have been like a New York giant or jet fan that just instilled him to become louder right? Because they wanted him to be quiet. And he began to yell it even louder. And Jesus comes to him. And on that day, this blind man who trusted that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David, he received his sight and his life was forever changed. And now he comes into Jericho. He's traveling to Jerusalem He's with the pilgrims. The pilgrims would count into the thousands as they made their way from Galilee and other portions of the country. They would come up to Jericho. And normally, especially this time of the day in the afternoon, pilgrims would stay the night in the city of Jericho and then begin the next morning early, the journey up to Jerusalem, about 10 miles, but it was an uphill climb through a very dangerous road the entire way. And you wouldn't start that late in the afternoon or evening because it was just too dangerous, right? You ask the, the story of the Good Samaritan kind of indicates this. And so they're going to stay in the city of Jericho. It's an important place for these pilgrims. And here is Zacchaeus, also an important man a wealthy man, an important man, in an important city. He's the chief tax collector. In that time, the Roman Empire had divided Palestine into three regions of taxation. 
Zacchaeus was over one of those regions. In fact, it seems maybe the most prosperous of the regions. And the reason why you know that is because Jericho itself was the hub of multiple uh, travel routes, trade routes that would go from India to Syria and from Palestine and Egypt, excuse me, India, Egypt up to Syria and, and from those regions over to the Far East and they would congregate in Jericho. They intersected there. And so the tax collectors, they, 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 they took in the dinero, right? And he's the chief tax collector. And the way this worked was in that day and time, the Romans would say, okay, let's just say Palm Bay was a region and you were the tax collector for Palm Bay. They would say, uh, all right, Paxson, you're the tax collector for Palm Bay. We want $100,000 every year from Palm Bay. But Paxson would have been free to collect as much money as he could get. And so if Paxson, if Paxson put taxes and set things up so that he collected $500,000, Rome got their $100,000, and guess who got the $400,000? Paxson. To which Allison said, amen, right? <laughs> right? That's the way it worked. But now how did they get those taxes? Because they would essentially extort it from the citizens of Israel. So Zacchaeus, he is the chief tax collector. Not only did he get his own money, he got a piece of the action of all the other tax collectors. So he's like, you know, you know, like the godfather of this portion. I mean, he's a, he is a wealth, he's not just rich, he's filthy rich. He's wealthy, he's important. He's a major figure in the Roman government in this important city, but he's also despised. He is viewed as the worst kind of sinner that there could be in Israel. Why? Because to get into this position, you essentially had to collaborate with the enemy, the Roman Empire. So he's seen as a collaborator, a traitor to his own people, an extortionist, someone who is perpetually unclean because he is associating with the Gentiles and with the Romans. He's their lackey, that he was despised, he was hated, he's hissed. He may have been rich, but he was lonely. Just to get an idea of, of how tax collectors were seen, maybe by putting it into our modern way of thinking, uh, you know, we, we have a saying, right? Uh, even Hitler loved his mother, right? You know what that's getting at? Hitler is a horrible, evil person, almost a personification of evil in our society. Yet even Hitler loved his mother. So there was at least something about Hitler that was halfway decent. Well, in the ancient world, in Israel, it wasn't Hitler who loved his mother. Even a tax collector loved his mother. Uh, Jesus used that as an example. This is common in Matthew chapter 5 in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's talking to, the, to his followers and says, listen, you're supposed to love those who persecute you, not just the people who love you, but those who do wrong to you, you're to love. And then to, to put this home and to really show how intense this was, he gave this analogy. He said, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Big deal if you love the people who love you. And here's the icing on the cake, the exclamation point. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Doesn't even Hitler love his mother? Even the tax collectors love people who love them. This gives you an idea of what's going on here. It's no coincidence that Jesus 
chooses Zacchaeus, that he seeks him out, especially in light of verse 10 and the mission of Jesus. He may have been rich, but he was lonely and he was ostracized by his community. He was as broken and in his need of restoration as the worst kind of leper. He personified what it means to be lost. Aren't you glad this story is here? You, you come here this morning, I come here this morning, we all come, many of us. In our past, there's all kinds of things that we would be perhaps ashamed of, that we did that were shameful, things that we look back on and go, wow, that's horrible, shameful thing that I did. Or we come with things that were done to us that were shameful. We walk into this church this morning and we hear this story of Zacchaeus and we realize that Jesus can save any of us. He can restore any of us. Doesn't matter what you walk into this church with this morning, with your past or what you're struggling with in your presence, in your present time, Jesus seeks and he saves and he restores anyone regardless of their history. In fact, this leads us to our next application. Why does God give us this story? God provides this story so we can encounter Jesus and be restored, so we can be encouraged to come to Jesus and experience him the way Zacchaeus experiences him. The scriptures say in verse 3, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. What's going on here? No man seeks after God. God seeks after us. But when God seeks after us, he begins to do a work of grace in our lives and in our hearts. And that work of grace looks a certain way. It changes us. Even before we are regenerate and we come to Christ, this act and work of grace creates a condition in our hearts. You see these conditions, these characteristics in Zacchaeus in this story. You see desperate humility at play here. And that's the work of God's grace in Zacchaeus' life. See, he, he had to become like a child, didn't he? Who runs around and climbs up trees, right? Children do. I mean, if you're an adult and you're still running around climbing up trees... You know, even today, we kind of look at that with a little bit of, hmm, all right? In the ancient times, in this portion of Israel, if you were a man, especially if you were a wealthy man, if you were a respectable man, you didn't run anywhere. You walked at a very slow and stately pace. You wore certain clothing, and you certainly did not climb up trees. <laughs> I mean, that's what children do. You know what happened because of this? Zacchaeus immediately, who's already despised, don't you know what the crowd was doing? Look at this moron. What is he doing? They ridicule him. They laugh at him because of how undignified. I mean, this is what a child does. He opens himself up to all kinds of ridicule so he can see Jesus. Doesn't care about his position. Doesn't care about his uh, posture and his pride. You see, desperate people, they don't, they don't let other people stop them 
from getting help. Desperate people don't have room for pride. They can't afford pride. Zacchaeus had to reject his pride. He had to reject his personal standing in the community. He had to be willing to subject himself to ridicule. Why? Because we cannot encounter Jesus if humility is not present. If we are not willing to say, I need help. There's something wrong with my life. This is not the way it's to be. And we cry out and we understand that we don't have room for posturing and for reputation and pretense. Not if we're going to encounter Jesus. Instead, there has to be that authentic confession of I'm broken. I need help. As a church, church, we want to be the kind of place with our vision that when people are at this place where God has done this work of grace, and this humility is beginning to take root in someone's heart, and they take the big step of walking into our church or engaging with you at work, we want to be a people who help and encourage and embrace this work of God's grace in people's lives. Not to judge, not to ridicule, not to jeer like others may have done in that crowd, but to applaud and to encourage and to embrace the person who has this work taking place. Desperate humility. There's another characteristic here. There's a singular focus at play. Zacchaeus, he positioned himself, <coughs> excuse me, he positioned himself where he could see Jesus. See, like the blind beggar, this work that God was doing in his life was drawing him to Jesus, and he began to realize that Jesus was the very embodiment of hope. And his only hope for salvation, for healing, for restoration comes in this person, Jesus. And whereas the blind beggar is shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, Zacchaeus is climbing a tree so he can see Jesus because Jesus is the one who can bring it. You come here this morning, and whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, and you recognize that, yes, there is brokenness in my life. There are things in my life that need to be touched and healed by God. I need an encounter with Jesus. That is where our focus has to be. He tells us, every one of us who is heavy laden, who is weighed down, who is weary and burdened, my promise is I will give you rest. So we focus on Jesus. Now, not everyone will approve of this. Right? You have family members who wonder about you, worry about you. You certainly have those in our culture who would ridicule and scorn. If you give your life to Jesus, it's not all roses and wine and good times from this time forward. There will be ridicule, there will be scorn, there will be those who question your sanity or your intelligence or your maturity. What are you doing believing in somebody who lived to Any number of things can happen, but the scriptures tell us he is the only way. Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only name given among men by which others, by which we can be saved. There's a singular focus, there's desperate humility, but most importantly, and you see it in verse 5 and 6, Zacchaeus gave Jesus the access that he needed in order to change him. 
When Jesus came to the place, to the tree, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's the reaction of the crowd. But the important thing is to see what happened in this interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus. The word stay there isn't, does not mean that Jesus just popped by for a quick glass of cold water and then headed out to the inn to spend the night. It means he lodged with Zacchaeus. He lived with him from four, roughly four o'clock in the afternoon until the next morning. He was in Zacchaeus's home. Zacchaeus opened up the home, the household. They ate together. They communed together. And as a result of that encounter with Jesus, where he opened up his home, his life to him, Zacchaeus's life and the trajectory of his life is forever changed. A new story is written. Don't miss the importance of this. In order for us to experience gospel restoration, this has to be the work of grace in us and our response to God's work in our life. To open ourselves up, every nook and cranny of our life, not reserving this portion of our life for ourselves. And Jesus can have this. And certainly, it requires us to see Jesus the way he is, the Son of Man, the God in the flesh, not, not a divine vending machine that we come to whenever we have a want. We come to him when we want, for what we want, on our terms, at a time when it's convenient to us to meet the needs as we see our needs. Understand that as long as we come to Jesus in this way, we'll never have gospel restoration take place in our own lives, even if we're a believer. Until we come to Jesus the way he is and open ourselves up to him, he is Lord. He has dominion over every element of our lives, our marriages, our children, our jobs, our finances, our sex lives, our interpersonal relationships, how we live, not just on Sunday, but Sunday through Saturday, he owns it all, church. He owns it all. And for us to experience him and to encounter him with the life-changing power as Zacchaeus did, we can't come to him with conditions. We come and say, move in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This verse is given to Christians I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will open the door, I will come in and I'll stay with you. I'll lodge with you. I will commune with you like Zacchaeus. And when this happens, and here's the final application, when this happens, he changes the entire storyline of our life. What are you struggling with this morning? Is it, a, is it a besetting sin that just has been plaguing you and you have no power over this? Is it anger at other people, maybe anger at God because of what has taken place in your life? Are, are you feeling like God has let you down because of what's taking place in your marriage or in your job? What is it that's bothering you this morning where you seem to be experiencing defeat after defeat, no power, no change, 
Same old, same old, year after year, day after day. When's it going to change? When is God going to show up in him? I promise you, if that's what you're experiencing, the issue is not with Jesus. The issue is blocking Jesus out, refusing to acknowledge him as Lord in this area of struggle. But when we give Jesus that access and we turn to him and we bow before his lordship, he moves in and the course of our life is changed. Zacchaeus stood. He did spend time with Jesus. And at some point, we don't know when, he stands up and he says, Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if have I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. The law required him to restore what he had taken by illegitimate means, plus 20%. Zacchaeus comes back and says, I'm restoring plus 400%. You see, when Jesus gets a hold of us, he changes the trajectory of our lives. The story of our life and the storyline of our life is changed when Jesus comes and lives and lodges with us, even just for the evening, like with Zacchaeus. Heavenly Father, would you give us the grace we need? Uh, give us the grace that we need, whether we are believers or unbelievers, to be humble before you and to cry out for help, to let loose of those idols, those things that we may be holding on to in our own lives that are blocking your power from being experienced, your presence from being delighted in, Lord, may we, each and every one of us, in a different way, see the story of Zacchaeus play out in our own lives, where we experience you, Lord Jesus, where you come and you stay and you change us. Give us the grace that we need, Lord. We ask these things for your glory and for the good of your kingdom here in Palm Bay and around the world. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.